Welcome to the Open Bible Podcast, a resource of Church of the Open Bible in Swift Current, Saskatchewan. In this episode, Pastor Jay and Pastor Joe discuss chapters 4 and 5 in Charles Ryrie's book, Basic Theology, and unpack how we can know God exists and how He reveals that to us. Hello, church and guests. This is Pastor Jay Hines. And Pastor Joe Sorgen. Welcoming you to another episode of the Open Bible Podcast. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. On today's episode, we are continuing along in our series of discussions on Charles Ryrie's Basic Theology, which we are currently reading through here at Church of the Open Bible. This week, we will be discussing chapters 4 and 5 in section 2 of the book, The Living and True God, which will address theology proper, or the doctrine of God. And Ryrie begins where I guess we would expect in chapter 4 with the knowledge of God. Now, before we look at what he has to say, I want to read a famous quote by A.W. Tozer in his book, which is titled The Knowledge of the Holy. He says this, and maybe you've heard this before. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. And for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. So again, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What do you think about that statement, Joe? Well, I mean, obviously that's that's got to be true. And, uh, you know, different people have different thoughts about who God is. Of course, as believers, we have one thought about who is God and uh, people from other religions have totally other ideas. But what's What's important is what does God's word tell us uh, about who he is? And that's how we learn more about God. And it's very interesting just considering that we as finite beings, uh, creation, can know our God, that we can know about him, but that we can also know him personally. It's just, it's a really wonderful thing, but also a very strange thing to think about. Mm -hmm. And it does, as he said, have great effects on our life, what we think about God. So I'll just give you one example right now as we're going through this election here in Canada. Understanding who God is has a huge effect on how we respond to it. Uh, knowing that God is sovereign, that he has perfect purposes and plans that he is fulfilling and will fulfill. Knowing that God is uh, above all of these things. Knowing that, uh, as the scriptures tell us, that God... Um, puts in place those who are in authority and takes them down as well. What a difference that makes when we are in an election and we have concerns about our nation and we have concerns about the political process and the future of our nation, all those things, to know with certainty that God is reigning over this all. I mean, that gives peace, that gives joy. Uh, as we go to vote wisely, it gives us a sense of confidence that, you know what? Whatever happens, God is in control. If the more we know God as he's revealed himself in the history of, of scripture, the history of Israel, for example, we see God using wicked pagan kings on the one hand to uh, 
punish Israel as, as part of their uh, judicial discipline for rebelling against God and idolatry. But then on the other hand, we see God also using, using uh, pagan godless kings to bless Israel and to be able to, you know, think of Cyrus and how it says in, in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah that God put it on his heart to let Israel, the Israelites go back to Jerusalem and, and build the temple and build the city to worship God. That is incredible. So the more we know these things about God and how big he is and his sovereignty is just one example, that greatly affects so much of our life. And particularly now as we're in an election and we're, we're thinking about politics in Canada. So Yeah, and as Tozer alluded to as well, it affects how we worship. Uh, and I think we kind of brought this out a little bit last week or a couple of weeks ago already, but uh, you know, what we know about God will in influence how we worship him. It has practical implications because if we don't know the truth about God, if we have a wrong idea of who God is, our worship is not going to be right. It's not going to be proper and uh, and it's not acceptable to God. We need to make sure that uh, we grow in our knowledge of God so we can worship him rightly. Mm -hmm. That's right. So in Psalm 51, where it talks about coming to him with a humble and contrite heart. The bigger God is, the more we know about his holiness, the more we recognize how small we are, the more we recognize how unholy we are. Mm -hmm. And therefore we will come to him humbly in worship. Yeah, that's right. So definitely what we think about God, our knowledge of God, whether it's true knowledge or false, will affect our lives. And in fact, is the defining factor in our lives. Uh, and of course that goes back to even what we talked about last week with those foundational presuppositions. Now the question then is, can we know God and how much can we know about God? Well, Ryrie begins in chapter four with the possibility of the knowledge of God. And he makes a very important point that the scriptures talk on the one hand about the incomprehensibility of God, right? That we cannot possibly understand him fully, not even close. He's transcendent. He's infinite. He's other. And yet the scriptures also talk about his knowability, that nevertheless, we can know much about him as he's revealed himself. And we see both of those truths in scripture. So for example, the incomprehensibility of God, we see in Job 11 verse 7, where Job says, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It's a rhetorical question. Of course not. Nobody can understand the deep things of God, the full limit of who he is. The prophet Isaiah says something similar in Isaiah 48 18, to whom then will you liken God and what likeness compare with him? No one compares to God, right? He is so different, so other, so holy. And yet we also see that we nevertheless can know some things about God. Uh, John 17, 3 says that this is eternal life, that they might know the one true God. We can know him to some degree. And also uh, in, in 1 John chapter 5, Verse 20, we see uh, the same thing. There the Apostle John says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. So we can know God, but we will never be able to mind the depths of his being. And I find that so encouraging because basically just about every other subject matter we can think of, we can study in depth and to some degree we can master a subject. God's the exception. Nobody will ever master the knowledge of God. Now on earth or in eternity, the scriptures talk about us learning in heaven. And so for all of eternity, forever and ever, we will be learning more and more about God and his infinite glory. 
And even throughout eternity, we will never know him completely. I think it's kind of like, maybe maybe it's a cliche, but I've heard it said, you know, the more I know about God, the more I realize the, how little I know about God. Exactly. Right? It's, it's very much like that, I think. Yeah. So I find, I think Joe and I would both agree, we find that a huge motivation to be studying theology and specifically studying God as he's revealed himself mm -hmm. in scripture. There's always more to learn, which is just exciting. And it's exciting to think about heaven, right? I mean, anyone who's been in my office, you know, I like books. And I just have this vision of spending, you know, however many millennia and, you know, I mean, all, I mean, eternity, we can't even comprehend that, but just so much of eternity. I just love the thought of spending in, you know, the the great uh, libraries on the new earth where, you know, there will just be an infinite amount of books being written about God and what people have discovered and it'll never end. And uh, I, I just really love that thought. But anyway, that's me. Um, so definitely God is knowable. And, and Ryrie goes on to talk a little bit about the characteristics of that knowledge of God. He starts with the source. And we talked about this last week. The source is God himself. We only know of God because he has chosen to reveal himself to us. And uh, Joe will talk a bit more about that in the next chapter. We also see the content of this knowledge. And I really love this. He says, a full knowledge of God is both factual and personal. To know facts about a person without knowing the person is limiting. But to know a person without knowing facts about that person is shallow. And that is so important when we think about the knowledge of God. It is both factual and personal. You can't have one without the other. If you did, it would certainly be an unhealthy relationship that we would have with God. And for example, Joe and I were talking about this earlier, but you think about a marriage. I mean, if there is a marriage that the knowledge of each other was completely factual. All it was, was, well, I know this and this and this about you, but there was no intimacy. There was no personal dimension to that relationship. I mean, I like the example you gave about coming home. Yeah. So, you know, imagine you came home from work and, and, uh, your, your spouse asked you, you know, how was your day? And, uh, and you just rattle off, you know, I did this and this and this and this and this and this and this at work. And then, Okay. And then you ask them, how was your day? And they rattle off all these things too. And then, okay. And then, you know, you go your separate ways. It's almost robotic, right? If you just know the facts, you just go your separate ways. Don't see each other. Don't talk to each other again that day. Cause you know the truth about what happened during their day, but there's no relationship really. That's just, that's just facts. It's not going to help. It's not, it's not building a healthy relationship. Yeah. There's no personal intimate um, aspect to it. And sadly, some Christians have, um, uh, a view of God or knowledge of God, a relationship with God that looks like that. It's just completely factual. That's not how things are meant to be. That's not how God has designed us to have a relationship with him. But on the other hand, also a marriage would be incredibly unhealthy if it was just completely based on personal time together, physical intimacy, uh, that sort of thing. But there was no talking ever about each other. They, the, the knowledge of each other and who they are, what they've been doing during, you know, their day, facts about them. If that didn't really exist and wasn't going deeper, we would say, wow, that's a really unhealthy relationship, you know? Oh, how was your wife's day at work the other day? Well, I have no idea. I didn't ask her. I never ask her. I don't know anything. I don't even know where she works, <laughs> right? <laughs> that would be obviously a big problem. And so it is with God. And wouldn't you say, Joe, that there's also some people, 
some Christians who also that would kind of define their relationship with God as well. It's totally based just on feelings and emotion and um, sort of that personal experiential aspect, but there's no knowledge about who God actually is factually. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe they know a little bit, but that never grows. They, they're, they're still just feeding on milk and uh, they know the very basics, but outside of that, it's just all the feelings. Um, and it's just not healthy. It's not a healthy relationship to have. No. And so we want a holistic relationship with other people. We want a holistic relationship with God, where the personal and the factual are both there and really feeding each other in a lot of ways as we grow in our knowledge. And we can know God. And this is really the purpose and the ultimate end of uh, the gospel and of the Christian life. Uh, it is to know God and to know him in this way. Again, for uh, John 17, verse three, this is eternal life that they might know the one true God. That's really important as we, again, consider the knowledge of God. I think if you asked a lot of Christians, what is the ultimate uh, end or aim of your salvation and your Christian life? And they would maybe say, well, because I'm a Christian, my sins are forgiven. Or because I'm a Christian, I'm justified. Or because I'm a Christian, I'm being sanctified. I'm living a holy life. Or because I'm a Christian, I get to go to heaven one day when I die. All those things are true, but they're missing the whole point. All of those things are only there. They only matter. They're only glorious because they all are what lead us to the ultimate aim, the ultimate end, God himself. That is the whole purpose of our existence, to know God, as Jesus said, this is eternal life. This is why I came, right? That you can have eternal life. And this is it, to know the one true God. I heard someone say one time, if you can go to heaven and your sins are forgiven and no more sickness, no more death, your family's there, your friends are there. It's this wonderful time. And God wasn't there. Would it still be heaven to you? Would you still be able to treasure uh, this gift of heaven? If you can say yes, then I think we've missed the point. We should be able to say no. The only reason heaven will be heaven and will be all that we were made for is because we will be with God. Yeah. Oh, exactly. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think lots of times we, you know, we forget that uh, our, our walk, our lives should be all about God. If God's not the main character in our lives, that's, a, that's an issue. And so, uh, you know, we need to, we need to check our hearts because often we become the main character or so-and-so becomes the main character. God ought to be the main character. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good way to think about it. Or as, uh, the first question in the historic Westminster confession of faith says, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we can enjoy him and we can know him as Ryrie has said. And he ends by telling us again, that this is how it's possible. It's possible because God has initiated his self-revelation. He's revealed himself to us uh, in nature and his word. And we'll talk about that later. He's given language as a gift for communication. Have you ever thought about that? Why did God make us um, able to communicate with language? Well, ultimately, not just to communicate with each other, but ultimately so that he can communicate with us and reveal himself to us. That's why he made us also, Ryrie points out, in the image of God in his own image so that we can have reason and we can have the ability to know him personally as image bearers. And finally, that's why he's given us now his Holy Spirit so that we can comprehend who he truly is. And that is just a wonderful, wonderful thing. And you know, 
whenever I am studying these things and studying God himself in his word, I don't know about you, but I just find I want to pray, Lord. Uh, and again, this is quoting, I think, Tozer a bit. Uh, I want to want you more. Right? I long to long for you. My desire is to know you. I know there's more. There's so much more. Help me to uh, find out more about you, to have that desire and to have that be really the ultimate purpose of my life. So, so that's the knowledge of God. Now that takes us to chapter five and Joe, you want to take over there where we start talking about the revelation of God. Yes, exactly. So this, this chapter kind of highlights how God is revealed to us. Clearly we can know him. And the reason we can know God is because he's revealed himself to us. And so uh, the, the book here notes two different ways that uh, we can know God. So the, the two different types of revelation mentioned here in the book are, first of all, general revelation and special revelation. Now, general revelation, uh, we can say, are, are things that are revealed about God just based on what we can see around us, uh, on who we are as people. And that's kind of what much of this chapter focuses on. And then special revelation uh, usually is more of something very specific and special that God has given us to show us that he is there and that to show us that we can know him. For example, his word. That's an example of special revelation. It is uh, an amazing gift from God to us so that we may know him better. Yeah. And then, of course, the greatest special revelation is the person of Jesus Christ, which is sometimes called personal revelation. That wonderful truth that God has not only spoken to us through other people, but he's spoken to us himself in person in the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God. Yeah, exactly. And and so I think we'll talk a little bit more about special revelation and, uh, of course, the person of Jesus and and the word of God itself a little later on in, in other chapters. But for today, we're going to focus more on general revelation. And uh, I like what Ryrie says here. He says, general revelation is exactly that. It's general. <laughs> you know, it's general in its scope. It, it reaches all people because, again, it's in the things that are around us, the things that we can see. And so I'm just going to make note of a few different things here that we see in this book. And one, one specific thing that we see, uh, one avenue of general revelation, we could say, is through creation, right? Again, the things that we see, the, the trees, when we, when we look around, we, we think, well, this, this must have come from somewhere, right? It's cause and effect. If, if this exists, it must have come from somewhere. And so, uh, naturally we, hopefully we'll think, well, that means it came from someone or something that is eternal because otherwise that being had to have a beginning. And, uh, and we know that that's not the case. Uh, God himself does not have a beginning as Genesis tells us in the beginning, God, he's eternal. He's forever. And again, another thing we can't wrap our minds around. <laughs> it's one of those mm -hmm. things we can know about God, but really we can't understand that. Like that's, that's unfathomable. But I can't even say that word, unfathomable. There we go. Um, but it, it's just, it's really amazing to, to consider that. And that's what creation should show us. Mm -hmm. That God, who is infinite, who is eternal, has always been. And he created what we can see. He created that sunset that just blows our mind. He created the, the leaves that are turning color right now. Uh, he created the seasons. He created the snow. He created all of it. And it all points us in the direction of God. Yeah, and it all should make us want to worship him. 
And I think that in itself too is a bit of an apologetic for the existence of God and his revelation in creation. Um, there's that sense of when you see uh, the beauty of creation, you know, you're, you're looking out, let's say here in Swift Current on a beautiful fall day and all the colors of the leaves and you're over by the creek and it's just still, there's a few ducks, there's the, the mist coming off, it's quiet, you can hear the sounds of some birds and different things. And you just have inside of you this sense of awe. Well, the question is, what do you want to do with that? Well, as, as those who know God, and as believers, we want to worship. We know exactly what that awe is there for. That awe is to be expressed in praise. And you just want to say, thank you, Lord. But the interesting thing is, it's also revealing that to those who don't believe. And they have that sense of awe too, but they don't know what to do with it. Uh, and, and I just think often how tragic that is. I can't imagine looking at the beauty of a sunset or the beauty of, you know, and, and majesty of the mountains and be in awe and just be like, well, yeah. on to the next thing or, well, that's amazing. That happened by chance. Yes. Yeah. They can't even say, you know, thank God nothing exploded because they would assume God doesn't exist. It's just, it, it's, it's true. Non-believers have really nothing to do with that. If, if you don't believe in a God who created, I don't know what you can do when you look around like that awe is there, but it's just like, okay, cool. And, mm. and there's no, no outpouring of adoration for someone who has made that. And mm -hmm. we have the amazing blessing and privilege uh, to have that. Now there's a few different scriptures that would uh, point us in, in the direction of this general revelation, the fact that God reveals himself through creation. And one of them is in Psalm 19. So I'll just read Psalm 19, 1 to 6 here and, uh, and make note of a few things. So Psalm 19, starting at verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Don't get very far and we already see this, right? The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out, uh, out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In, in them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So those verses really go to show how we can know God, how God reveals himself to us through his creation. And that's amazing. And specifically, God declares his glory. And that means we as believers as well, though they don't recognize it, unbelievers, when they're out in creation and they see the heavens, they see the sky above, they actually witness a glimpse, a tiny glimpse, but a glimpse nonetheless of God's glory. What an amazing blessing mm -hmm. that is. You know, that's, that's an example of God's common grace, we would call it. Mm -hmm. Everyone Everyone gets to see that glimpse of God's glory. What a privilege. What a blessing that is. And so that's really, I think, what Psalm 19 here is showing. Everyone gets to see that glimpse of the glory of God. We get to know that about him. He's revealed that to us. But there's another passage, another passage of scripture that uh, shows us another aspect of God's revelation, of God's general revelation and creation. And that's in Romans chapter 1. So Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18, says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And and on and on it goes from there. But but we see so clearly in in uh, that that those few verses in that passage. Again, God has revealed things about Himself in creation. His His omnipotence, His power, the fact that He's created all, and that's actually enough for for people to be condemned. They should they should see that and be like, there is a God. Right. And and because people see that and they don't recognize who God is, uh, they, they don't come to a saving faith if they never do um, that. That actually is enough for the wrath of God, it says, to be to be poured out. And that's very interesting as well. Yeah. And that has very practical ramifications. It's also interesting that he uh, Paul says there in verse 18 that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Mm-hmm. So everyone knows the truth. So this is. Um, just an interesting point to consider, particularly when we're dealing with apologetics that, or, or a defense of our faith, you could put it that way, is that, you know, if someone says, well, I don't believe in God, well, we look to the word and say, no, you do, because I'm going to believe God and what he says, not what you're saying. You do. The problem is you're suppressing that truth. And the reason you're suppressing that truth is not because of there's not evidence, not because it's not an intellectual problem. Paul says it's a moral problem. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what happens if there is an all-righteous God and creator who will hold us accountable, then we are in trouble. And then we will be held accountable for what we do. And it matters what we do. And we cannot do whatever we want without there being justice in the end. And I think that in itself, too, is a whole nother apologetic. Because also, why is there guilt? right? Everyone understands some, to some degree, there is right and wrong. And everyone, and that manifests itself usually also with a sense of guilt when we do something right or wrong. Well, where did that come from? What what can explain uh, an objective moral standard of right and wrong and an internal sense of guilt? The only The only thing that can explain that is a biblical worldview that starts with the presupposition of the existence of God, just like scriptures does. And then as we work out these things, not toward God, but from this presupposition of God, it's like, well, this makes total sense. Without that, there's no explanation, right? So an evolutionary worldview cannot explain the existence of morality and justice and guilt and right and wrong. Uh, but the biblical worldview can in a in a beautiful way. And back to the point we were talking about is that's clearly revealed. It's mm-hmm. revealed, Paul says there in creation, his wrath. But it's also, Paul goes on in Romans 2 to say, it's also um, on the conscience. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, exactly. And so if we were, basically, if we were to sum up that line of thinking that creation reveals God, we have two options, right? Either the cause of the world, the amazing things we see around us is nothing, um, which that's a head scratcher, or it's God. It's someone eternal. Uh, it's it's God Himself, right? And uh, and those those are the two options, and that's that's why it's such a strong 
apologetic that many Christians use because we can't explain where everything came from outside of a created or a creator, sorry. And of course, then we can go even further. And this will just a little teaser maybe for what's coming with special revelation. The only God who can make sense of these things is the biblical God, the triune God mm -hmm. as he's revealed. Only that God can give us a consistent answer to these these questions as well so yeah and then there's also just a few other things i'd like to note here quickly uh that of, of how god reveals himself uh to us generally and one th another thing is through organization for example the seasons you know i know that seems very connected to what we just talked about but the fact that you know it's always here in saskatchewan spring uh summer fall a really long winter spring and, and on and on and on it goes right there's organization well that's because someone created it again it's that same type of argument this type of organization it can't come from nothing if you uh, i like the example of of a watch it's really good um i'll see if i can find it here well i might even just add just this book we're reading yes exactly right? to say that this book with all of its words in it it's thousands and thousands and thousands of words and they're all put together perfectly in order to make coherent sentences that make coherent paragraphs that make a, a coherent chapters and argument in the book as a whole to say that this could have just all come from chance is complete nonsense and yet our universe is infinitely more complicated than this book before me to say that it all happened by chance again is nonsense yeah exactly it's like if you threw a whole bunch of parts of a watch, all the little gears and everything, you know, I'm not talking about a, a digital watch, but an actual watch. Um, and you just throw it on the ground. It's not just suddenly going to come together and organize itself into a watch. No, of course not. It demands a creator. And so that's what this argument is going uh, to, to point to. Now, there's another argument here, and that is that uh, God has revealed himself through man. And that's a little bit of what Jay was talking about before, the, the conscience, the fact that uh, there's guilt. All of that points to the fact that God must exist. So that basically summarizes essentially the main types of general revelation that there are when we consider creation, uh, organization, man uh, themselves or mankind themselves. Uh, but, but why? Why is general revelation important? That question still remains. What's the value of general revelation? Well, we've already alluded to a few different things, uh, but I just want to dig a little bit deeper here. And so one value of general revelation is that general revelation displays God's grace, right? The, the, again, the fact that we have creation, that we all get that glimpse of God's glory, that's an act of God's common grace. That's amazing. Uh, it also, an, another value of general revelation is that it gives weight to the case for theism, which again, we've already uh, alluded to quite a bit. The fact that this had to come from somewhere, it points to one God who is infinite, eternal, and created all of it. So it points to theism. Finally, the value of general revelation is that uh, it shows us that God can justly condemn rejectors of him. Now, I, I really liked how Ryrie put this. He put this in a very good way because it's something that lots of people struggle with. You know, like, how is it that people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ are condemned to hell? How is that fair? Well, as we looked at Romans chapter one, right? Creation itself should, you know, it, it shows who God is. 
and and that's enough for God to reveal his wrath. Um, but how he explains this here is really, really good. Jay, do you want to jump on that a little bit? Well, just that um, general revelation is enough to condemn, but it's not enough to save, mm -hmm. right? We need the gospel. And sometimes that has caused people trouble of like, okay, but something like, how is it fair that so many people never hear the gospel and therefore are condemned? And the biblical answer to that, first of all, is that uh, if, well, first of all, if we want fair, then nobody should be saved, mm -hmm. right? God would be absolutely fair and just and righteous just to condemn all of us uh, as our, in our sin and rebellion against him, but he doesn't. So that's one aspect. But then the other aspect is that, no, it has been clearly revealed to all of us, uh, this existence of God and his righteousness and his worthiness of worship as we look to creation, which we fail to do. Now, maybe this is what you were going to get at too, then. Mm -hmm. He gives a great illustration of how these two things go together and how it is just and fair and right to say that, that God has revealed enough to condemn in general revelation, but only the special revelation through the gospel can save. Yeah, exactly. So um, he, he gets to this in on page 38 of his book. So he, he says this just to, as an illustration. If a concerned student goes to his fellow student who needs uh, $1,000 for tuition and offers with genuine loving concern $10, which is all that he has, and if his $10 bill is thrown scornfully on the floor with a mocking, what good will that pittance do me? What further obligation does the student have to provide additional help to his fellow students? If he should suddenly be able to give the entire $1,000, would anyone charge him with injustice if he gave it to another needy student? Accepting a $10 gift will not save the person who needs the $1,000, but rejecting it will condemn him, right? If, if that student didn't take that $10, of course, should that first or that second student who was kind enough to offer it, should he get $1,000 that he can give? Is he going to give it to the guy that didn't even accept the 10 no. Now, of course, this is just an illustration. It's not perfect by any means. Um, but but I think it does really get to the point. That $10 bill, that was enough to to show the kindness of this of this person, this student who gave it to their their friend. But when that friend threw it on the ground, that also was enough to say, okay, they've they've rejected this about me. Should I have the opportunity to give them that thousand dollars? I'm not, I'm not doing it. I'll give it to someone else. Now, of course, that, that sounds, that does, hopefully that doesn't sound petty. That's not the idea. Uh, but, but it's just a picture of, of God, right? He's showing us a glimpse. That glimpse is enough for us to hopefully accept it, to hold on to it, to see who he is, to see God's kindness, that he is, he is truly there. But if we reject that, if we don't understand that that comes from God, that too is enough to condemn us. Yeah, and ultimately the onus isn't on God as it is on us. He's given us the mission. He's given us the mandate to go and share the gospel. And so rather than saying, God, this isn't fair. Why are so, have so many not heard the gospel? Why are so many therefore not going to have eternal life, but are going to be condemned because of your general revelation? We should rather be saying to ourselves, how have we failed? How have we fallen so short? Look, why after 2,000 years does the whole world not yet know of Christ? Why do 2 billion people today still have no one to tell them about Jesus Christ? Uh, that's where the onus should go. And that's where we should be motivated when we read Romans 1. 
to see this truth. It should drive us to our knees in prayer and it should drive us forward in our mission to go and reach the unreached so that everyone not only has the general revelation of God in creation, which can condemn, but also would have the special revelation of God in the gospel, which can save. Yeah, if we read if we read Romans 1 and think, huh, good riddance, there's a problem with us. Yeah, uh, it should be that motivator for us to go and to share the good news of the gospel with the nations. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great place to end today. Uh, join us next week as we go on to discuss chapter six of Ryrie's book, which will address my favorite aspect of theological study, the perfections of God are more commonly the attributes of God. So what is God like? Well, that's the big question we will be discussing next week. Until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit abide with you now and forever. So long. See ya.